that sheer joy of seeing our home planet in space, even though I had seen a thousand pictures of it before, just being able to see it with my own eyes and this sense of, you know, life and warmth and energy sort of coming from it. Hi, I'm Azim Azar, your host on the Exponential View podcast and the creator of the weekly Exponential View newsletter. Today I'm in a rather special conversation with the first Iranian astronaut in space, Anoushe Ansari. Anoushe is also the CEO of the XPRIZE Foundation. In our discussion, we explore how the space industry is changing and why the XPRIZE model of innovation, public competitions designed to encourage breakthrough technologies, works. We also hear from Anoushe about her own time in space. But before we get on to the conversation, I'd like to give a shout out to the World Economic Forum, our partner in producing this podcast. With me in Dubai is Jim Landale. It's great to see you. Why don't you tell me and the EV audience more about the World Economic Forum podcast and what you have in store for them? The Glimpse into the Future podcasts are a series of conversations with experts from the World Economic Forum's Global Future Councils. Um, that have gathered in Dubai for uh, the world's largest high-level brainstorming session. Well, thanks, Jim. Make sure you check out the WEF podcast for more thought-provoking conversations. I'm here with Anoushe Ansari. Good morning, Anoushe. Good morning. It's great to, to be with you here. We're in Dubai uh, at the Global Futures Councils of the World Economic Forum. Are you, are you a regular attendee of this annual event? Uh, I am. For the past two years, I've been part of the Space Council. So this is the third year we're just starting. Yeah, it, I find it an amazing uh, I- event. So many brilliant minds coming together uh, to, to contribute. Uh, Space Council uh, is a fascinating topic area and I think part of your own personal story. I, I love the tale that I read in your a biography that said you arrived in the US as an Iranian teenage girl speaking no English, and then within a couple of decades, you're up in space. It's quite inspiring. How did that happen? Um, a lot of stars had to align, and no pun intended, but, um, you know, space has been my passion since I was very young and uh, uh, always been thinking and looking at ways w- where I can uh, find a solution to uh, be able to go to space. Uh, coming here as a teenager, I studied engineering and, um, you know, my chance of getting into the NASA program as a full-time astronaut was slim because uh, I was a U.S. citizen even back then. Um, and I was an Iranian after the hostage crisis and right. all the conflicts. So I figured, okay, chances of getting into NASA is not very high. So I went a completely different route, uh, um, uh, built a career in telecom and as an engineer and eventually uh, started uh, building companies with my husband as an entrepreneur. And um, basically my entrepreneurial route became the way uh, I found my way to go to International Space Station. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the first thing um, that happened that sort of opened that path was our sponsorship of the XPRIZE. Um, and the first, uh, I'm sorry, X Prize. Absolutely. What was your first memory, the, the trigger memory, when you were a child that made you created your fascination with with space and technology? So um, 
What I remember is that uh, summer nights uh, we would sleep outside because uh, we didn't have air conditioning, it was hot. So just laying on that bed and looking at the night skies, I would just let my imagination play these games and imagine these worlds, imagining people, imagining places I could fly to. And I was fascinated with the stars and I kept wanting to know what they were, how they got there, why I'm here and they're over there, how do I get there? So this whole concept became sort of a fascination for me and I became interested in math and sciences and astronomy and that just stayed with me. Uh, as In general, as a child, I was a very curious person and I always asked this question, which drove my mom crazy. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it was just the start of that fascination. And then I loved science fiction books, uh, read Joel Verne's books, uh, watched Star Trek on TV in Iran, and that whole fascination just continued on. What, was there a particular personal or family mentor who was instrumental or supportive in that journey? Well, I think they just... Um, most of the time, they had no idea what I was talking about, so they left me alone. But um, actually, none of my family members were in math and sciences. Um, they were more in uh, humanities and, and sales and marketing and other aspects of business, but not in math and science. It's interesting that when you tell your story, uh, and es essentially, you built a business, the result of which allowed you to get into space, that seems like the business skills of your family were put to use. Yes. The space skills weren't, weren't there. Absolutely, absolutely true, yes. I, I think, um, you know, uh, one of the best things that my family gave me was actually the freedom to explore and do things, which is something I really uh, encourage parents to do these days is to allow their kids to question everything and let their imagination sort of open these new doors to them. Because we don't use our imagination as human beings, you know, uh, enough. Especially when we, we become adults, we sort of condition ourselves to limit about what's practical and what we, um, you know, in, imagine or invent. That's so true. It's almost some part of what the culture of growing up is about, which is turning down your imagination dial and turning up your responsibility dial, perhaps. Practicality. practicality. We, become, we become practical adults. Yes. But I, I guess it's still, a, a, as an engineer, your, a lot of your life is about uh, practicality and somehow marrying the, what, what is possible with how you practically uh, achieve that. Uh, that's absolutely true. I mean, um, one of the skills you learn as an engineer is uh, problem solving, but uh, you have the context of the laws of physics and you know, your skills as an engineer that comes together to build something. However, um, you know, what we perceive possible uh, versus what is actually possible may be two different things. And that's the field of imagination. How far are you willing to push yourself? How much risk you're willing to take? Which is also something that you learn as an entrepreneur. Um, you know, you can be very practical and take no risk and stay where you are and not innovate, or you can take risk and push the boundaries and learn something new and then push the boundaries again. And, um, you know, that's part of being an entrepreneur and using your skills as an engineer to problem solve, but with a lens of future. 
That, that judgment, though, between what is, what is possible and interesting and large enough to matter to the world, and yet somehow has a, a tractability ab about it, is that particular thing, is that, a, is that a, an innate judgment? Is this something that is born out of experience, born out of mentorship, or something that can be taught? Um, I think it's a combination. Um, I don't know if it can be taught, to be honest with you. It's your appetite for risk. It yeah. comes down to your appetite for risk. And um, I can give you an interesting example that I've learned uh, in space. So I trained with the Russian Space Agency mm -hmm. and learned a lot about the Soyuz program. And when I went there, you know, the capsule they had was, it looked like it came from, you know, the uh, Yuri Gagarin. And it <laughs> right. was... It was very close to that. They had not changed many things. And, you know, you sat in it and I think the operating system was still DOS back then. Um, and, and, um, you know, you go to the opposite side in NASA, you look at uh, the advancement in their space program and the shuttle program. So they're continuously evolving and innovating. Whereas in Russian space industry, their philosophy is if it's not broke, don't fix it right so that's like two extremes of risk taking it is two extremes and I, I, you know if you look at the risk uh the, the outcomes i think the soviet space program had a lower incidence at least of reported uh, uh fatality and casualty than the u.s space program absolutely. uh absolutely true so in terms of uh, reliability the soyuz capsule is definitely most reliable means of traveling to space. But we'll, with just the Soyuz, you would have never been able to build the space station and, and you know, have the Hubble telescope and all these things because the shuttle uh, was built to carry these large instruments and pieces to space. So, you know, it's, it's a question of what you're trying to achieve and, and uh, how much risk you're willing to take. And you can apply that to every industry and every activity. Mm. Well, the closest that we uh, mere mortals get to space is watching movies like First Man or mm -hmm. Apollo 13 or, or Gra Gravity. Uh, you've, you've been in space uh, and come back successfully. Uh, did, it, did it change you as a, as a person at that time? Um, the experience of being in space is really transformational because it helps you see the world entirely differently through a different lens. And it helps you feel part of something much bigger than just the, your planet. Um, it helps you see the world as a whole. It helps you see yourself as part of the, the bigger picture of humanity, not just, you know, part of one country or one region. And I think all those are transformational experiences. It helps you... Uh, define your relationship with the world and with your priorities differently and, and really truly focus on um, humanity and what's important for our planet, our home, um, more than any, any time. Before. And do you have enough time while you're with all the things you have to do as an, as an astronaut to, even, to, to reflect while you're orbiting the, the home? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I did is... Um, you know, I made sure that my sleeping bag was next to one of the portholes and um, all throughout the night, I just looked out the window and, and tried to stay up, which meant that 
at the end of my 11 day journey, I was quite exhausted. <laughs> but, uh, but I was like, I have limited time. When will I get this chance again? So I, I stayed up a lot. Um, but, uh, it, it really, um, you know, you can't get tired of it. You see a sunrise and a sunset every 90 minutes and, you know, you never get tired of seeing another one. Yeah. And does, I, I'm, I'm just curious about how that impression changes over time. I and mean, does it start in your heart and make its way up to your head? Does it start in your head and make its way down your, your body? How is it the sort of physicality and the sense of emotion that you have, uh, change? Um, I think it, uh, obviously it starts in your head because it, it starts with your visual cortex and, yeah. and seeing something, but it very quickly gets into your heart. I remember when, uh, I was in the Soyuz before we, uh, arrived to the space station and just the first moment that I was able to float up and look at our planet, see Earth from my window in the Soyuz. And it was the strangest feeling because I was crying, I was laughing, I was happy, I was emotional, and I couldn't explain why, because I was just looking at our planet. There was nothing else going on, but that sheer joy of seeing our home planet in space, even though I had seen a thousand pictures of it before, just being able to see it with my own eyes, and this sense of you know, life and warmth and energy sort of coming from it, which, you know, I couldn't really feel because I was in my spacesuit inside a capsule. Um, but it just, it, you, I could feel it. Yeah. And it was hard to describe, but it was quite an emotional experience. Well, I'm sitting two feet away from you and, but looking at you and hearing <laughs> you speak this, and it, I feel emotional hearing, <laughs> uh, hearing you talk about it. So, uh, so I can only imagine what it must have been. Like, like for you. I'm, I'm curious as to what the feeling is, is like when you leave the space station to go back in your Soyuz to return to Earth and you finally return. Is it a, is it a sense of, of growth? Is there a sense of loss? Is it, is it both? It's both. Um, to be honest with you, when uh, you're someone like me who focused all of your life on this grand goal vision you had in front of you and now um, you know, I was in my forties and I just accomplished this big task and, and big dream. And I came back and I was depressed. I was like, okay, what do I do next? What's, what could be as important in my life? And, and it was hard for me, but, um, um, you know, I did the first blog from space and, um, when I was, uh, you know, uh, coming down and, and reading all these comments, it was obvious how much my story had inspired uh, young people, especially women around the globe. And I'm like, you know, this is this is amazing. I'd never thought about how just one story can um, create this type of motivation in so many people. So I felt that, you know, one of the things I should continue doing without knowing what else I would do. Um, is to tell the story and continue to inspire others to go after their dreams and, and to pursue things that may seem impossible, like going to space. And, um, and then the other thing that I, uh, felt was, you know, coming back to earth, I felt like I've been awakened by this whole view that I had out of my Soyuz capsule or, or out of the space station. And I felt everyone else is sleepwalking and I wanted to shake them up. And it's like, 
you know, wake up, look at this world. This is a beautiful world and look at what we're doing to it and look at how we're just fighting with each other and missing the big picture. Um, so I was quite frustrated and I found that, you know, interacting with young people, they get it. They get it quickly. They have this common digital language that now they speak that has helped them see beyond, you know, borders we draw on a map. And, and I felt like this is the audience that I want to focus my energy on. So empowering young people to build that beautiful world that I saw from space station became a passion of mine. So I've done a, quite a lot of work with, with uh, empowering uh, youth uh, globally. And, and you also uh, had got into space via the XPRIZE in your relationship with Peter Diamandis. Yes. And, and who's the, I think also the founder of the XPRIZE. Yes. Um, so, I, but, but connect, can you just connect your story back into the XPRIZE now? And, and, and because you've taken over as CEO in the last month or so, but perhaps take us back to the beginning of your relationship. Sure. With them. Yeah. So um, when I had just uh, sold, um, you know, our company, um, I was with my husband vacationing and then I got this call from my assistant that there's this guy, Peter Diamandis, he wants to see you. And I asked her, well, what does he want to talk about? He says, about space. So uh, immediately I said, please set up the meeting. And I came back and I heard his story of how he's also passionate about going to space and he feels that a prize would open up space to everyone. And at that time, I was already looking for a way of uh, making my dream of going to space come true. And, and I felt that this is the best way because uh, by supporting a prize, not only I can make my dream come true, but I can be the instigator of finding a way for millions of others who would want to do the same thing. And, um, and I believed in the importance of opening up space to humanity because I had learned about how all these technologies in space had solved many problems for us here on Earth and doing more of that through innovation um, and getting private companies involved could really, really blow this up. So, um, so I, um, you know, I talked to my husband and the rest of the family and we all said, Let's put our name on it. And we became the title sponsors. And as part of that, I sort of, it was my foray into the space community and getting to know more and more people. And um, on the first anniversary of the winning of the X Prize, which was in 2004, um, I met um, uh, Eric Anderson mm -hmm. from uh, Space Adventures, who told me about the opportunity to, to go train with the Russians and potentially in the future go to space and that's what I did I'm like as long as I'm sitting next to astronaut I'll go anywhere fantastic <laughs> so I ended up in Russia and, and, and let's, let's let's talk, talk a little bit about the X Prize uh, and the the approach that it takes towards fostering innovation what's the what's the goal and how's it how's it set up so uh, X Prize does something uh, brilliantly and that's Looking at the big problem, big challenging problem where there's a market failure uh, in general solving it and then looks at can we find the right framing and right incentives to get people around the globe, the crowd to come up with solutions to solve it. And uh, we do that really well. We started with our first prize, which was the Ansari X Prize for um, building a spaceship, basically, to go to edge of space and, and come back. 
but then we expanded into other areas. So we're in energy, health and longevity, education, um, you know, a lot of environmental mm -hmm. uh, prizes. And basically we find these uh, problems where whether it's, um, it's something that requires technological advancement or maybe just requires a new uh, innovative approach, new business model, whatever it is, for whatever reason, um, there's not incentive in the market mm -hmm. to invest the time and energy to solve it. Our prizes are anywhere between, let's say, 5 to 30, 50 million, depending on the, how big of an issue it is. It runs between a couple of years to maybe five, sometimes 10 years. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's a long-term view. And uh, what we do is we don't award just for an idea. We only award the prize when the solution is demonstrated. And that's what is very unique about XPRIZE. So, uh, and it takes a long time. Uh, because we don't want this to just be a science project. We want this to be something that's feasible, scalable, something that can be deployed and achieve some impact. And uh, what we've seen in Ansari Xprize and has been repeated throughout this, we put in the prize money, but usually 10 times or more of that is spent in investment in the technology. So all of a sudden, an area that didn't have any investment has, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in investment. And where does that other investment come from? Is that from researchers getting government grants or getting private funding? And both. Right. So, for example, we would we did a $10 million prize for the Ansari X Prize, but about $100 million was spent in different teams. Uh, we had 26 teams that competed for the prize from, uh, I think, seven different countries. Um, the winning team was uh, the scale composite team mm. funded by Paul Allen, mm -hmm. $25 million uh, of investment to win a $10 million prize. Right. But that whole thing and the work we did... You could argue did, that ROI isn't brilliant, but equally you could argue that you've underwritten $10 million of the risk. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And, and uh, when you look at that, actually, then you project forward all the work we did during the time that we were waiting for someone to win the prize, the regulatory changes that we uh, did, the, um, you know, just the awareness we created uh, is actually what allowed this whole hundred billion dollar industry be, um, you know, sort of uh, gave birth to this industry. And, and we have SpaceX, Blue Origin, uh, many of the companies that started investing money in building private uh, space companies because now it was possible. FAA didn't even know what to do with a private company in space. Yeah. And, and we had to do a lot of hand-holding to create new policies that uh, made it possible for these companies to even exist today. Right. So just actually on that space uh, point, you there, there's a whole set of innovations. You've talked about a few um, that relate to private launch vehicles and private uh, sort of human space flight. I think there's also been a tremendous explosion in, in satellites and private satellite constellations and satellites are becoming these palm-sized CubeSats and yes. we've seen a hundredfold increase in the number of yeah. launches over the last few years. Yes, and that's very exciting. Um, and that's part of also this uh, the exponential technologies and Moore's law curve where the cost of uh, imagery and sensing equipment mm. has dropped significantly. Everything is shrinking in size in terms of technology, and and it makes it 
feasible to have small satellites being able to do things that very large satellites only were able to do in, in the past. So it's opening up a whole new way of looking at capturing data from space mm. and using this data for um, different applications here on Earth, whether it's farming, uh, right. um, weather prediction. Um, a lot of this data is used these days by insurance companies uh, to predict well, risk. I, I'll share you a personal story of mine. About 15 years ago, I was at, um, I was at Reuters, and one of the projects I worked on was trying to see if we could get real-time satellite imagery of ports. So we wanted to, the start of the, the, the millennium, we wanted to take photos of ports to look at global trade. We didn't really know where to begin, and I, I literally found myself calling the NASA switchboard <laughs> with the question, I want to launch a satellite, how do I do that? And then roll forward to 2018, and you can go to a number of different companies' websites and fill in a web form, and they're live, you can see an index of photos of the planet that are a couple of hours old and buy them for a handful of dollars. Absolutely. And that's, that's what's happened in just exactly. 15 years. Exactly. And, and I think that trend will continue and um, actually we'll get to a point that a lot of this data I'm hoping will become uh, sort of uh, open and accessible uh, for many, uh, yeah. many users. And, and the other thing that I found fascinating, the, the small amount of work I've done around um, nanosats is how there have been such quite interesting engineering innovations. So I, th I think one of the challenges for electronics in space is about cosmic radiation and hard hardening for it, and that makes satellites quite big. What they've started to do with the nanosats is accept that there's going to be errors c created and then correct those errors in software using machine learning, which hadn't been something that had been done previously. Is that, is that the sort of innovation that you, you've seen come out of this sort of work? Um, that's one of the areas, and, and I think um, it shows you how um, all these different fields of exponential technologies uh, actually cross each other and, and create multiplier effects. So um, it's not just one technology advancing, it's the fact that all these technologies are advancing together. You talk about 3D printing, a lot of the pieces of the um, CubeSats can be 3D printed. There are people in, you know, they're workshops in their high school building, students building CubeSats to launch. Um, they can buy very, very high resolution cameras for very little money. Um, they can use old recycled phones to put on a satellite. Right. Right. I mean, you, you talk about, um, you know, innovation. It's, it's incredible how much, um, you know, power can be um, it's concentrated in just handhelds that can be put on a CubeSat and then you have your navigation system, your GPS, you have right. your imaging, all sorts of things. Well, yeah, so, so what's fascinating there is a combination of um, very specific innovations that are required for, for space together with leveraging other exponential technologies perhaps coming out of scale markets like mobile phones. Yeah. Ex exactly. And, and um, mobile phones is what drove the cost curve to come down, but you know, now it has opened up applications many different areas. Uh, so I'm curious about something you said earlier, which was you wanted to identify um, where there had been market failures uh, around innovation, and that's why you, we, we, you chose the sort of prize uh, mechanism. Uh, I mean, normally the role of uh, uh, when there is a market failure, we ask our governments to step in or governments step in and kickstart things, as they did with the original space program, as they did with the original... 
semiconductors uh, uh, back in the, the sort of 40s coming out of the, the defense industry in the West Coast. Um, and as they did with the internet originally, of course, that was called Ar ARPANET. Um, why, why do you think there was a, a room for the XPRIZE to, to step in? Why were, why were governments not backing these sorts of projects? So I think governments have very specific uh, agendas, mm. uh, which is not a, serving a global agenda, it's more of serving the, the country's agenda and, and in terms of gaining power. Mm -hmm. um, the whole space program and why it started actually uh, advancing was because of the Cold War. Otherwise, mm -hmm. there was nowhere, the, the, no way the Congress uh, would have approved the budgets for the, you know, a lunar lander. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think the motivations of governments are different. And um, it's not until you have the private industry involved that you get to, um, you know, the type of scaling that you need for these solutions to become important enough for humanity. You talk about internet. Um, yeah. Internet was available for a long time to universities and governments. It never created the impact that we saw after it was opened up and then uh, when you had Netscape and other, mm -hmm. you know, very early companies sort of creating a user interface that it became accessible to more people who were not specialists. And that's when things that we didn't even predict started happening, businesses that we never imagined. And I, I think of space in the same terms, that if we really open up space and give people access to use space technologies and resources, uh, in the same way that the internet did back then, we can't even predict what applications could come out of it, and it could be very, very exciting. Well, and so what are those applications? What are the ones that you've seen emerge in, as we've seen the cost of getting, into, getting satellites into space decline? What are the, the exciting areas? Well, um, you know, the applications that I see right now happening is a lot of them around... Uh, you know, basically turning uh, the cameras back on Earth, basically, and looking at, you know, how our world is changing, how it impacts trade, how it impacts, you know, farming and food supply and global chains that um, manage many aspects of our lives. Um, and, um, and that's a lot of work that's going on right now, communication capabilities, all that. Um, but what excites me is potentially to go beyond that. One of the areas that I'm continuously looking at space to help us is how can we reduce the burden of um, using our resources and polluting our environment and put that in space. Um, where there's much more space. There's much more space and it's cold and it has plenty of um, you know, sustainable energy through sun. Right. And, uh, you know, we have, we keep talking about the cloud and, and, and clouds basically are massive data centers and they consume enormous amount of energy. They need cooling. And what if we put all this storage and the data above the clouds in space with solar panels that can capture the energy of the sun all the time and that we don't have to worry about uh, keeping it cool because it's cold in space um, and it can be non-real-time data so we don't have to worry about the round-trip delays. So, so literally what I can picture is a data center in geostationary orbit perhaps connected by a, a nanotech material uh, space elevator uh, 
uh, and with, uh, with big optical fibers running through it. And the, da the data center is powered by the sun, cooled by the coolness of space. Uh, and we're not running servers locally. We could put, potentially put all our Bitcoin mining up there. Absolutely. We don't even need the uh, nanocarbon nano and, and a fiber connected. It can be just satellite beaming if it's, if it's just storage and non-real-time right. non data. But uh, definitely there's opportunities to explore uh, the resources of space much more efficiently to really reduce the burden of uh, resource needs here on Earth. It's a really, it's a really interesting idea. I guess the tension, uh, the tension is that a lot of the high-value applications that we we start to increasingly need need to be proximate because the machine needs them so quickly. If we look at uh, frequent high-frequency trading in finance, or um, you know, even uh, applications in autonomous vehicles, you want your storage, processing, compute, decisioning to be within, you know, within arm's reach of where the. Oh, absolutely. So th those things you do here. Yeah. You know how many uh, terabytes of data is just pictures on Facebook and right. the storage data that is consumed by all these things that we can cache a little bit of it because we know how we use it and, you know, we can put all of that up there and then, you know, for sensitive real-time um, data use local resources. Yeah. Well, that's a, that's quite a big uh, big idea. I, I haven't come across anyone actually doing that just yet. Is that, no, I no. don't think so. I I keep preaching this to people. <laughs> right. Someone should do it, and then I will claim the IP if they do it. <laughs> I'm sure you claim the IP, and yeah. yeah. Uh, the and the applications that I've seen that have been pretty exciting have been uh, real time or near real time, 10 centimeter, 20 centimeter, multispectral analysis of the, of the planet for precision agriculture or for human migration, climate change monitoring. Yeah, yeah. Um, we actually, we were just at the uh, Future Global Council on Space, we were talking about, um, you know, prize ideas around using space uh, technology to solve uh, issues highlighted by the sustainable development goals of UN. And if you look at it, there's a lot of them that, uh, you know, space technologies can play a big role in solving. So there's always applications for uh, this type of things yeah. from space. Well, it's, it's quite interesting in, in terms of how it can also help leapfrog uh, it, certain countries that may not have the right kind of infrastructure. Uh, because instead of potentially having to build monitoring or sensing infrastructure, you can quickly rent some satellite time to count the number of cows or look at the water levels in the reservoir, exactly. uh, that, that can be done at a much lower cost, which, which is quite nice when you find uh, technologies that have this distributional uh, aspect to them that are sort of more equitable. That, that, that often feels good because often with technologies, they're expensive initially and they have to be used by the, the wealthiest nations and the wealthiest com companies and the wealthiest people within those companies. Absolutely. And I think... Um what uh, is important uh, in, in my world is to make sure that, as you said, it's equitable. So you have people all over the world knowing that it's available to them. Because one of the issues we face is there's tons of technologies that uh, is out there that can help people. And it is affordable. It's just they don't know it. They mm -hmm. just don't have the knowledge on how to access it. So finding that uh, the ways to make sure that there is information and accessibility at all levels across the globe 
for people to know that they can reach these types of technologies and use them to benefit, you know, their little farm that right. they're running. It's important. It's it's quite it's quite powerful though. It's this idea that that it's not really been uh, what sixty one years since Sputnik. Yeah. Uh, to get to a, the point of a single, I think Sputnik had a four hertz pinger, so every quarter of a second it did a beep, or was it every four seconds? I've for, forgotten which it was. To a mode where, for fifteen dollars, I can get a picture of any part of the planet. Exactly. Pretty remarkable. It, it is remarkable. Yeah. So let's just thinking about the X Prize a little bit. You've just taken over as CEO in October 2018. Uh, so what does that hold for where you want to take uh, the, the X Prize? I, I want to say just one thought is it does sometimes feel, while it's still an international prize, it feels like it's quite American. It's quite baked into a West Coast narrative. Um, so I'm, I'm curious, given your own international heritage, Iran, Russia, and so on, um, what, what plans do you have for X Prize? I'm uh, very excited about how far we've come with it and, and I hope to add a little bit more of my flavor to, to what we'll do in the, in the future. And one of those areas, as I mentioned, is, uh, youth and youth empowerment. So I think we've done a great job of actually being a global competition. Every, uh, um, competition we launch, we have people, uh, participating from all over the world and and the winners are not always from us so we are a real global um, organization however um, we don't have enough participation from young people so uh, i want to put sort of a focus on how we can uh, tap into that energy and innovation more so that's one part of what i hope that we can do in the future and one thing um, that we haven't done enough of is to look at long-term impact and how we can make sure that the solutions that come out of our competitions actually get implemented in the market mm. so we're looking at ways of uh, expanding that impact curve into the future by the work we do at express so with this question of uh, uh of youth what do we gain by uh engaging more young people in these sorts of things um so there's uh, 1.4 billion young people out there uh, with uh, great ideas um highly engaged uh, sick and tired of hearing about how we have basically ruined the world for them. Mm -hmm. And they have ideas how they can fix it. They just are not given the platform to do it. So I'm hoping XPRIZE could be one of those platforms that allows them to demonstrate their, um, you know, creative, uh, you know, juices and, and, and show how they can find solutions to the problem we've created for them. And, and I guess a lot of those problems relate to the biosphere and planetary boundaries and, and climate change and the carbon, carbon budget. So there are particular prizes uh, that are, are on offer currently from the X Prize that look at those questions? Yes, we have a um, um, carbon X Prize right now, right. which is focused on extracting carbon from output of, for example, coal um, plant and turn it into a useful product, something that can be used, sold, so make it sustainable and you know, takes away that, um, you know, negative, um, impact on the environment. Uh, we have, uh, other, you know, energy and environmental projects in mind that, um, we are going to announce in the future. Uh, we're looking at, um, how we can reverse some of the negative impact on the environment. So, 
Um, coral reefs have been one of the areas that came out of our last visioneering. Right, they've been really damaged by acidification and the rise in the temperature of the ocean, Absolutely. around Australia, right? Absolutely, Reached and and, and, oh. and we're trying to see how we can use technologies to help restore those coral to to their natural, healthy yeah. state. Um, and um, you know, we've had many ocean prizes. Right now, we have an ocean mapping. We had an ocean sensing before. Um, so we look at our environment uh, with a great lens of where are some of the innovations that can help, um, you know, reverse the negative impact of uh, what we've done to our planet and also prevent further damage. Something interesting happened uh, in this area around ocean plastics, um, and I was curious to, to watch that uh, in the very short period of time in the context of getting any sort of global consensus, we seem to have moved towards really limiting uh, the least moves to putting plastics in the ocean, at least from one particular area, which is consumer use, and not the plastics coming from fishing nets at this point. And, and a lot of people argue that this was driven by the sort of very, very emotional, uh, motivational videos from David Attenborough and Blue Planet 2, where we showed sort of marine life suffering from pla plastic. Those sorts of things captured the imagination and they drove action, a grassroots action, and then that drove companies to act. Um, do you think you need to uh, bet, establish things like that within, within the X Prize? Is that something that you see as, as, as a necessary condition or is it just an accelerator to having the impact? Um, I think um, raising awareness is a big part of what we do and uh, we engage media, social media, and, and uh, just the communities of people involved in certain areas to raise awareness. So um, uh, actually Ocean Plastic is a good example because we started looking at this, whether we need a prize. And the, by the time we started looking at it, we felt that there's um, enough awareness created where there was a lot of already activities going in that direction. So we didn't do a prize in right. that area. So we don't want to go where there's already enough attention. We uh, go where there is, an, you know, nothing happening and there's a white space. And uh, the first thing we do is, you know, raise awareness about this so we can capture the imagination of the teams and how they can solve that problem. Just as we just come to the end of our, our conversation, I think one thing um, that uh, is, is important to me, I'm a father of uh, three children, two, two girls, uh, uh, is the question of, how women and girls get engaged in uh, science and technology and mathematics, something that you've, you've done um, yourself. Why is it important? To me, it's uh, critical, actually, because when you look at our world, you can see uh, many different aspects of our world and our lives are driven by technologies. And what's missing is the voice of women in designing mm -hmm. the, uh, those technologies and the direction it takes. And I feel that uh, if you have more women engaged, that these technologies and the way they evolve could take uh, a different direction. Um, and I think it's important. What I've observed is that whenever women are involved, you will uh, see more co cooperation and collaboration. You will see more sensitivity toward the environment and sustainability. And I think, um, you know, sort of... Um, women have more long-term community-based approach to designing solutions. 
and I think having women, more women involved in these technologies will really be critical. And I'm really saddened by the fact that we don't have enough women in, in science and tech these days. I mean, it, it, it seems to be getting marginally better. Is the, it seems to be the, 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 the good news. The, the debate is certainly much, a much more important, significant level than it was five or ten years ago. Uh, and I've certainly seen the a shift in uh, uh, the, the shift in how the, the media represents it, uh, and the attitude that the schools, certainly in London, have been taking towards that. But I know that's by no means universal. Uh, thank you for making the time on this your hectic trip to Dubai. Oh, thank you, thank you for having me on this show, and I hope at least uh, we got your audience to think beyond their daily lives and uh, imagine a bigger world and see the world through a space lens. And just do tell us the URL for XPRIZE so people can check it out and hopefully enter themselves. Um, so please check out, actually we have a lot of active and exciting prizes and we want uh, the world to engage in solving these problems and our URL is www.xprize.org. Well, thanks for listening to the Exponential View podcast this week. Remember to subscribe to get notified of our next Exponential Conversation or stay in touch with me by signing up to my newsletter, Exponential View. You can find that at www.exponentialview.co. That is www.exponentialview.co.